Avengers Infinity War. Now, nothing will ever be the same. Can anyone make sense out of all that's happened? These guys are going to try. Peter Melnick, local newspaper production associate, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And Eddie Wilson, upstate New York morning radio broadcast announcer in the Sullivan Catskills, inundated with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. What happens next? Listen up, true believers. It's time for another episode of The Marvelists. There's a world beyond the one we know, where the powers of darkness fear nothing but one man. Blade. We represent the ruling body of the Vampire Nation. They're offering you a truce. They want to meet with you. You're sure about this? They'll take us in deeper than we've ever been. Now, those he has sworn to kill need his help to fight a new breed of terror. They're no longer top of the food chain. Our forces are ready to fight, but we need a leader. Let me get this right. You want me to hunt them for you? Ooh, so exciting. Five, four, three, two. One. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. Wesley Snipes. Not. No. Who you are messing with? Blade 2. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode with our special guest, co host. Ah! Anyway. You're going to tell people, Peter, how you can find us on social media. Peter, I'm glad I asked that. Oh. I'm, I, I'm just talking to myself now. It's weird. I'm like, I got possessed by Conchu or something. Like, there's multiple people in here now. Is that a fact? Yeah. Praise better, be to Conchu. Better start taking orders. It's going to get hungry pretty soon. Like the wolf. And the wolf howls at the moon. Conchu, Eddie. Conchu. Or barks like Ozzy's song. Exactly. Go on Facebook at Facebook.com and give us a like on there. Please. At Facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a follow on the Twitter machine at The Marvelists. You can also give us a follow individually, myself, at Peter Melnick. And Eddie's not on Twitter. He doesn't want to be on there. He doesn't want any of your Twitter nonsense and chicanery, people. But in the meantime, you can also follow us both on Instagram at Peter Melnick and yourself Eddie, 9193. You can also follow myself. You can also follow The Marvelous at... The Marvelous. There we go. And... That only makes sense. I just got stuck on it. <laughs> the simplicity of it. There are so many options, by the way, to be able to listen to this here fine program. You go on iTunes, rate, reviews, and subscribe, by the way. 
You can also listen to us on TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, and we're going to get to a little part about that with Stitcher Radio. But in the meantime, you can also listen to us on a platform a lot of people have been talking to us about for the past few months since we started the show. When are you going to be on this? When are you going to do this? Well, people, we're finally on Spotify. Yes. So open the Spotify app, and you will be able to listen to us. Stream us anywhere your ear holes want to hear us. But also go on Stitcher.com slash premium, and at checkout, use that promo code. Marvelous. And when you do, people, when you do, you get a free one month of Stitcher Premium. And what that entails is the ability to listen to a crap ton of content, including the WTF with Mark Marin archives, Weird Al Yankovic's concert archives, the Earwolf podcast network, including How Did This Get Made, as well as Marvel's foray into podcasting, Wolverine, The Long Night. How did what get made? Exactly. Well, well a lot of <laughs> subpar art, but... I really show. All right, you just say that. I'm okay. That too. I mean, I, I like... I like the sound of my own voice too. Sad thing to admit out loud. Hello, darkness, my old oh, friend. Validation. Okay. But once again, go on Stitcher.com/premium and use that promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And when you do, you're helping support the show. You're helping Eddie and I with server costs, with dancing lessons. I I don't know. Just it helps the show out. Yeah. Okay. We have to figure out that dancing part. I mean. I gotta tell you, I got these long dancers' legs, and it's pretty impressive. If it works, otherwise you're nuts. Pretzel nuts. Don nuts. No. Oh. Good, good guy though. Yeah. With the bug eyes. But Eddie, when you sign up for that, also after the first month is over, if you want to stay on Stitcher Premium, is only four ninety nine a month. Good deal. Exactly. And we're enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. You're enjoying it. The whole mm. damn world's enjoying it. That's why they're still doing it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So now, let's talk about who is joining us on this episode, Eddie. Who? We are joined by Dalen Rowell. Is that how I pronounce it? Yeah, that's how you pronounce it. <laughs> is it correct, though? It is. Oh, uh, actually, my last name is it, my last name is one of mystery that even my ancestors didn't know how to pronounce. So whatever you go with, I'm good with it. Tale as old as time. It's a confusing last name. <laughs> Blame yes. uh, the Irish and the uh, British and the French for not understanding how to pronounce roll or any. I don't know my last name. They just don't know. And also, Dalen writes for Slash Film. And, you know, you've, you've had quite a number of articles on there and some fantastic content. And Thank you. Definitely check out her writing on there. And also, how can people get a hold of you on social media? Uh, you can look me up uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Magic a la Mode because that's the name of my blog where I put most of my writing. And, uh, yeah, you can find me on there. Or if you look up uh, Dale and Roll on Slash Film or on LeonardMalton.com, you'll find me there. You're writing for Leonard Malton now. Yes, uh, I'm doing uh, a part of their new, um, they they have a new thing that's called New Voices, and I was one of the lucky few who was selected because my friend Jesse, who is Leonard's daughter, is the best, so I'm uh, very lucky to be a part of my hero's website now. 
But wait a minute, you said new voices. They're just articles, written articles. You can't hear anything. That was a terrible joke. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie's ears yeah, perked like, where up is, from that. I, just, I, I, I had a question in there, and hopefully I haven't, I haven't forgotten it now. Eddie, what is the question? The question is I need a spelling on our guest's name. Oh, uh, you spell my name D-A-L-I-N. Dallin. And the other part? <laughs> Roll, R-O-W-E-L-L. And it's Dalen, and it's actually both of my parents' names put together, David and Linda. Very nice. Okay. Original, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, according to my grandmother, it is. So, Dalen, I've known you for a little over a year, and in that time, I've known you as a big fan of Guillermo del Toro, and throughout the rest of this episode, I'm only saying del Toro because I always have a hard time pronouncing his first name. And I've known you as a fan of his work, and I've also known you to love the movie Blade Two. Yes, that is correct. Um, I am a huge fan of Guillermo del Toro. Yes, that uh, guy. I've been a fan of. <laughs> yes, that guy. Um, I've been a fan of him uh, since the early two thousands when Blade Two came out, and uh, when I found the rest of his filmography, I became an absolute. A diehard fan for him and I was very lucky to meet him uh, around 2009 when he was putting out the um, Strain book series and he's an incredibly talented individual and he gives the best hugs period end of story I think it's more like exclamation point that that's true that's true okay. it sounds too I mean, yeah, to be anticlimactic or just period end of story i mean kevin smith gives good hugs he gave me a good hug oh question mark (laughs) (laughs) it's true but i mean are they full of beautiful exotic gothic magic like gear most hugs are i don't know no just new jersey cigarettes and pot that's pretty much about Uh, oh that makes sense yeah doesn't smell flowery like lavender i guess okay (laughs) (laughs) not a big fan of that but but uh yeah but the movie that we're going to be discussing today, Blade Two, you would say holds a very special place in your heart. Uh, yeah, I would definitely say that Blade Two holds a very special place in my nerdy heart for sure. It has a lot of the things that I wanted to find in comic book movies when I was a kid that I wasn't getting out of a lot of the ones that were, you know, mainstream and popular. And uh, I think it was one of those things where I got my first good dose of cinematic violence. And while this is not as violent as the first one, the first one is incredibly violent, and that's actually what Eddie pointed out immediately upon seeing this one, the difference, the the tonal change. It's still pretty out there. But maybe having seen the first one, you know more what to expect, I think. Yeah. Uh, the only thing is, like, for me, you know, this is going to tell you how old I am. Uh, I was 12 when Blade Two came out, and... When the original Blade came out, I was way too young. And even though I thought Wesley Snipes was super cool and I got to watch Demolition Man when I was little with my cousins, you know, I didn't get a chance to be part of the initial Blade craze. But when Blade 2 came out, I was really lucky that my cousins happened to grab a DVD copy of it for me. And I was able to see all the eccentric violence and insanity, you know, at such a young age and Mm -hmm. 
take it in with also realizing that Ron Perlman was in the movie. So it made all the scary parts just a little less intense for me. I love Ron Perlman, even though he looks like a gigantic uh, Will Ferrell stung by bees. But <laughs> I think he's much prettier, much, much prettier than Will Ferrell. And for all those out there, you have to know that you are talking or more listening to a giant Ron Perlman fangirl and always will be. So... I'm never going to think that he looks like Will Ferrell. Instead, he's Stung just by so beautiful. N- exactly, but no. <laughs> he, to me, uh, he is just a beautiful, um, weird piece of genes coming together in a strange mixture of weirdness that also has a beautiful, deep voice that's really sultry. So That's it. It's the voice. Gets him every time. Oh, that voice is ridiculous. Like, even Guillermo talked about that voice, saying that it made him even, like, attracted to Ron. Yeah, I'm kind of like that with Sam Elliott. And you <laughs> need to see A Star is Born, Eddie. You really need to see it for him. Especially. Yes! Dude, I, I, I'm going to quickly do a quick mini aside. He should get Best Supporting Actor for A Star is Born. He was fantastic. Oh, totally. totally. But I digest. <laughs> Eddie? So now, yeah, 2002, Blade 2. And I thought one of the things that you brought up about it, the, the difference between the first and the second one, this this second one now, that people, I think, started to understand, oh, this was from a comic book, you know, kind of thing. The first one was definitely covered over, masked over. They didn't want it to be, to be put out there. But I think in some scenes, some stop-motion scenes, fr- almost freezing in midair, if... if Blade was doing some kind of flip or some other action with the sword that you realize, hey, this is how the comic book would do it, you know. So so it re- re- reminded me of that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I think one of the really key differences when coming into Blade 2 after seeing Blade 1 is that the um, Wesley feels like he's more comfortable in the role, like he owns it a lot more. And you could also tell that the cinematic landscape of Hollywood is starting to understand that superheroes are supposed to be cool as opposed to when the first movie was made, there was sort of this initial thought that, uh, the, that blade should be made in sort of a cheesy parody fashion, but because it was made so seriously, that meant that comic book movies after that could be taken more seriously. And you can definitely get that feeling from watching even just the simplest, like, you know, intro into Blade 2 with the, um, you know, with the beginning introduction to Luke Goss's character. There's already, like, you definitely take this world seriously. And you didn't have that before comic, uh, before Blade. You didn't have that before Blade. No, I, I agree. And uh, and just like you said, with a couple things, the intros, and I think the opening credits, I made a note of them recognizing Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan as the contributors to that character. Um, and just like you said, opening scene of the Prague blood bank and, and establishing this Jared character, how he hates vampires. You're, you're, you know, you're setting things up for conflict and that this is, you know, a quote, real type of a world scenario that we're being dropped into and finding out what's going to unfold. With the concept of it being in Europe, by the way, I have to delve into one of our questions that we got on my personal Facebook. I ended up sharing that we'd be asking questions, and this comes from former guest host Doug Garnum. 
why is it in every movie involving vampires is Eastern Europe such a hotbed? And that actually is a very interesting and funny question. Well, <laughs> vampires, Dracula, you know, Eastern Europe, right? Is that all? And why are there so many raves? <laughs> yeah, well, it's um, to cover. Ooh. It's an eminence front. <laughs> That's exactly it. It's a put on. A put on. Put on. I do have some ideas as to uh, the reason why a lot of them are set in Europe, if you don't mind me maybe going into that. Go for it. Okay, so the thing is is that, you know, a lot of vampire lore, like as Eddie mentioned, comes from the, you know, aspects and parts of Europe. Um, Particularly, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula is by an Irish writer. So by default, there's this feeling that, you know, um, the entire identity of vampires is supposed to be set in a world that we as a Western audience, because this is a Hollywood movie, don't understand. So things like, you know, even being set in an English speaking country, we sort of get this feeling that like, you know, we are in this sort of mystical landscape that we as American audiences would not be able to see in our own uh, country. So we wouldn't be able to have, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of what character would, well, obviously there's so many Russian characters in this movie, which I found like the, um, like ones that speak only in Russian dialect. And I think that's supposed to add this sort of like, mystery and um element of uh you know um sort of like a an extra oomph of um i try to think of what the word is sorry i'm getting like tongue-tied and garlic. lost for a second <laughs> yeah garlic absolutely um no i think it's it has to do with something that you know being films set in a european landscape have this more sort of automatically gothic different kind of quality than when they're set in america because we don't tend to as an audience find those sort of um tendency those those sort of elements in a, when we think of america you know in film we we tend to not think of it as having gothic and dark and haunting elements instead we just think of like burgers and hot dogs and rock and roll so seeing the you know a film where it's set in like a european landscape we get like a bit more of a haunting quality to it that's what you get absolutely when you said gothic i said well the outdoor shots of, of you know castles and that whole mis- mystique about if you want to call it that but that definitely sets the tone for for that i agree yeah. And also, you know, like we have things like uh, Bella Lugosi was the person that played was one of the first iconic uh, people to play Dracula. So, you know, I definitely think by default, vampires are just cooler when they're from Europe, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Well, they've tried a couple other ones, including uh, Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> he was my favorite yeah, vampire. But... <laughs> I mean, personally, I'm a Nicolas Cage is a vampire fan. But, oh, yeah. let's love Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage is <laughs> he's the best vampire. He goes blah. blah. That, would change, that would definitely and, put a know, change in his overbite. <laughs> <laughs> I speak because I tell you I'm the truth. Sorry. Yeah. Actually, you know, he, 
I, I think of him when you do his accent. It yes, it does pervade through his roles, but I think more of it when he put on more of an accent with you know Con Air with that movie. Con Air, mm. yeah, I was great <laughs> in that movie. Well, and I had just uh, recently, I always have an annual rewatching of Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola version. And Coppola, that's my real last name. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's it's uh, really interesting to watch that movie when you think about that uh, Gary Oldman as a British actor. But when you're watching him playing Dracula, you never once ever think of him not being anything but uh this very you know ancient eastern european uh descent coming from his voice hans gruber <laughs> well that too that too absolutely that's right but you... i definitely yeah yeah i just right. definitely think that uh the, that uh um gary oldman does such an excellent job at making you uh completely terrified of him while also being weirdly charmed by him and i don't think a lot of the vampires in this movie necessarily have that quality but i still was thinking about that as i was watching it especially with the uh oh man i'm forgetting her name but the russian lady vampire who has the bright red hair i found her also very charming in that way i i am with you on that yeah both in yeah. terms of gary oldman and in the red-haired lady that i can't think of her name either but <laughs> now this movie is a few years removed from another movie that introduced somebody to the mainstream audience and he would go on to be a big deal on the small screen Norman Reedus and seeing him in this movie so young and yeah you know he was obviously younger in Boondock Saints where he got more of his mainstream start but this would also lead to a friendship between him and Del Toro. And now he's doing, you know, his PlayStation game, I believe, Norman Reedus and Norman Fetus. And it's it's a very cool thing to see He got, where he essentially got part of his big start. And the the character, what did you guys think of him? I, I really liked it. And actually, it broke my heart to see him turn. But that's just me. <laughs> So, uh, with Norman Reedus, first of all, can we just talk about that he doesn't age? Like, he really He looks the same. Looks, yes, he looks exactly the same, except, like, he has a little bit more of a, like, a plush baby face. But for the most part, he looks exactly the same. Um, also, I don't know if you guys noticed, but he's actually wearing a BPRD shirt. Really? Yes. So... A little hint to a future Del Toro project and my favorite comic book series of all time. Huh. So I thought that was pretty cool. And for those of you who may not be familiar, if you only know Marvel, you make yours Marvel, well, BPRD is a part of Hellboy. So, and of course there's more of a Hellboy connection to this movie. The concept artist and storyboard artist, Mike Mignola, was involved with this film. And this is, I believe, they collaborated together on this movie in hopes that they wanted to get, you know, they wanted to see, Hollywood wanted to see how Del Toro could do a movie, a comic book movie, and we'll give you Blade. Let's see how you do with this, and then maybe we'll, you know, give Hellboy a try. Mm. And give Hellboy a try, they definitely did, and they're going to be doing again, but without Del Toro. <laughs> so, actually, the 
the first big movie that was like a Hollywood film that uh, Del Toro got to work on was actually Mimic. And that's a really strange little movie that not a ton of people remember. But I think Blade 2 for sure was definitely the first one that really got him a lot more notoriety in the blockbuster Hollywood business. And his relationship with Mike Mignola definitely cemented what would become like an incredible you know only two part but definitely powerful and cult loved uh film franchise with hellboy um and the thing is is it's really cool to see two artists who you can totally tell that they're in sync with their visual style and that's definitely what you can tell through with del toro and Mike Mignola's relationship. And it definitely comes across even in the designs and the cinematography in this movie. The little touches there are definitely like very Mignola-ish. Um, and yeah, I love that aspect. That was that was something I noticed about this film with the camera angles and just the the way it was shot. It was a very, you know, unique voice. Through visual, a very a very unique eye. So what's really interesting is that the cinematographer on this movie is uh, Gabriel Berastain. I've never said his name out loud, so forgive me. I'm sorry, Gabriel. <laughs> but um, he uh, is actually someone who's worked on a ton of Marvel projects, but not a cinematographer. But he worked in the camera and electrical, uh, you know, fields department on uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and Avengers and Iron Man. So he definitely has like a Marvel connection, but he also has a distinct style that um, goes along with Del Toro's, uh, you know, unique um, shot compositions. And it goes really well with uh, Del Toro's unique shot compositions and his way of using the camera. But it also shows that the two of them were working together to bring about Mike Mignola's designs through the concept art into the cinematography. And we get the introduction of meeting 20 years ago, Whistler that he met, and now he's, he's hunting him because he's infected. Um, I, I thought one of the little motions that, that reminded me of something else was Blade kinking or twisting his neck. You're hearing that neck crack, and who else does that but our old man Logan, Wolverine. So there's a comic connection right there. But apparently uh, we, we do see that Whistler is found. He must have not killed him or he kill, he was going to kill himself because of being infected. So we still have Whistler as a uh, supporting character in this in this film. And we get introduced to uh, Josh or Scud or, or Skid as he becomes nicknamed. And B, short for Blade, the name given by skid scud to, to him and that kind of thing um and we first encountered these two uh this man and man and woman who uh red goggled disguised if that and whatever um and we find out about the vampire nation and it's quite and, a sensation uh, yeah i bet it is mm -hmm. it's uh it's a yeah it's a rocky horror thing that's <laughs> well, just a jump to the left or and, whichever uh, it is and, and you know and one of the first uh shots at humor coming in there where not only do we start by meeting the overlord but um you you know you're getting a shot of the hand marking and the one saying to the other you're human the response is barely i'm a lawyer 
Um, actually, do you mind if I talk a little bit about, or I bring up something that I found really interesting within that first chunk of the movie? Be our guest. Oh, she is. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is one of the first really big action sequences in the film is when the uh, two uh, characters that come in with the large kind of red, um, you know, goggles. Uh, I don't know if, like, would you guys consider that like a helmet? Like, what what was going on with those costumes? I had a lot of questions um, in regards to those costumes. Infrared? I, yeah. Yeah, something see like that. See better at night? Uh, what is it, Assad and Nisa, I guess, were their names? Yes, yeah. Well, so the thing that I that stuck out to me is that um, the way that Guillermo shoots these particular sequences is much different than the prior uh, Blade films director's style. And he also uses a lot more CGI doubles in these sequences. And as well like done and lit as they are, they are very obvious to a 2018 eyeball <laughs> at times. Yeah, I think it's possible. I Mostly I'll get immersed into it and I'll just kind of go along with what's happening and be somewhat oblivious, oh. actually. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I felt like there were a few times where I definitely was paying attention more to uh, the CGI, which I think for the most part stands well, you know, after like, what is it, like almost 20 years at this point that this movie's come out? Yeah, for um, me, it didn't. For me, the CGI was just like, oh, 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 that's the thing. But the practical <laughs> oh, yeah, effects. No, yeah. The practical effects were gorgeous, but compared to, like, you know, I felt there was a severe lack of it. Like, the most we saw was the vampire autopsy. Yeah, but I think also um, that the scenes where um, the vampires that are the new breed of vampires, I guess we'll call them that for the moment, uh, the special effects used on them, specifically the visual prosthetic effects like on their face, I thought was very well handled. And some of the CGI blending at times between the two, um, you know, the... Uh, prosthetics and the CGI blending wasn't exactly perfect, but I do think that this film does a pretty good job of blending the CGI and the prosthetic work pretty well together in some of the shots, but there's certain moments where you could definitely tell that a, the certain uh, you know new uh, vampire breed, their mouths look a little bit... Uh, you know, detached from their bodies more than they should, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but for but for the most part, I I I I personally think that the CGI looks you know as good as it can for the time that it came out, and I think uh, you know Del Toro definitely has a better hand at understanding the amount of CGI that should be used in comparison to the last movie where. There was way too much unfortunate CGI happening that does not look good on a Blu-ray transfer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up, um, you know, because we were talking about good old Whistler, uh, Chris Christopherson. I think it's really cool to see that, you know, and I 
I think about this, obviously, about the first movie, too, is that, you know, Chris Christophus is an actor you never would have thought would have been in a comic book movie, especially because, you know, whenever I think of Chris Christopherson, I think of him as unfortunately having to be next to Barbara Streisand in the 70s version of A Star is Born and not necessarily a comic book icon. Um, I mean, I totally think of that. (laughs) But I definitely, uh, I love getting to see him play a role that you're definitely not used to. And I think that in Blade 2, he gets to do so much more than he did in the first movie in terms of like, um, you know, character development and just even the little moments of him, you know, reacting to other people's, uh, um, you know, just the even the little moments of him reacting to other people's dialogue when in referencing to him being like a father figure to Blade, you definitely see that he's enjoying the role even more than he did the first time, similar to Wesley. I completely agree. Yeah. And you only think of him in the previous role that many years ago. And now, you know, like 180 degrees difference. But he's enjoying it. He's being a badass character. And, you know, succumbing to part of the environment that, you know, he finds himself in. And uh, what, weapon designer also and and everything else. And a tech guy and and a doctor of sorts. Physician. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Like the, the fact that, you know, um, it's, you know, the fact that an actor like Chris Christopherson could even want to be in a movie like Blade, uh, you know, it's amazing to see that in the sequel, he gets to, you know, evolve and become more comfortable with the character. And you definitely believe all the things that he says and, you definitely feel the connection that he has with the other characters. And I think that's a testament to how good of an actor he is. Do you think it was pitched to him as a comic book movie or it was more, we want you to do a horror movie? Um, I tend to think that it was pitched to him as a comic book movie only because I tend to think that a lot of the people involved with the first movie and obviously definitely the second movie because they knew what they were in for, um, were being told that initially it was supposed to be a parody movie. Um, And so they didn't know exactly what the tone was going to end up being until, you know, the final script ended up being there. Um, So, you know, I definitely think that he was pitched it as one kind of movie, but when the project finally was like, you know, coming uh, along in the midst of, yeah, when the project was coming along and beginning to start production and the script was finalized, he definitely knew what kind of a movie he was in. And you could tell that, like, you know, in both the first Blade and in the sequel, that him and Wesley are definitely the most comfortable in their roles when it comes to knowing what kind of a movie that they're in. Because Blade is definitely a very specific kind of comic book franchise and it's not like any other one in my opinion i agree i don't know how uh you know it comes about that an actor has brought proposed work and through the agent or otherwise and i and not to disparage or belittle or anything negative but 
was he did he have a big workload coming did he have a lot of offers coming this way uh, let's try something different did star know? is born too electric boogaloo right it, did he know <laughs> that title was taken in breaking break dancing yeah breaking two electric boogaloo no stop it all right so sometimes you know you just have to put him in his place we don't know what place <laughs> it is yet but we have to try as i was trying I, I... to get across but no you know was he told okay you know this could mean another uh, another film so uh, we'll give you an extra 10 grand or whatever the case you, you don't know all these little minutia i well, do i think the... <laughs> i think the thing to keep in mind when it comes to chris christopherson's career is that a lot of people you know we're thinking of him as more of a music guy who just also happened to be an actor than necessarily someone who was, um, you know, a like a, a B-level actor looking for whatever kind of job they could get. I think that Chris Christopherson is definitely an actor that wasn't necessarily someone who put acting first when it came to their career, because he also was known as a musician, and that's a big reason why he was part of, you know, A Star is Born. And I think when he was initially, like, offered Blade, I'm I'm just going to guess, though I don't know, that he probably wasn't the first, uh, you know, choice for that part. But the fact that he even, uh, you know, took it on and was like, you know, you don't want me to sing or anything is... <laughs> uh, you know, something very interesting, because if you look at a lot of his filmography, a lot of it is music related. And uh, this definitely is not a typical Chris Christopherson joint, if I do no, it's, say so. Yeah, you're right. And just because you don't hear see a person's name doesn't mean they're not working and doing other things behind the scenes. Even some of the uh, singers, let's say, that were from the 80s and you don't hear, but they're still producing other people's records and doing that. Behind like the, the Monroe's. Scenes. Like the Monroes, yes, the one-hit wonder from 82. So uh, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up about the beginning portion of the film. Yes. Uh, we have not talked about our villain, or our main villain, I should say, and that is Luke Goss, uh, who plays Nomak. I believe that's his name. Yeah. Um, so Luke Goss, for those who don't know about his filmography, he's also tied in with Del Toro and Hellboy later on down the line because he played uh, in the sequel to Hellboy, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army. He played Prince Nuwada, who is the elf prince. And so in my mind, I've decided that Luke Goss is resident uh, pale evil boy <laughs> and that uh, he constantly just plays um, very sinister bad guys who look incredibly pale to the point where you know you see their veins or in an elf's case you see their uh, elf markings but the funny thing is I don't know if you guys know uh, Luke Goss was actually originally in a boy band in England, and that's where people knew him from before he had a really big film career. Um, well, not really big, but, you know, a, a modestly big film career. So, you know, just think about that. This lovely young man who was in a boy band is now sucking the life out of both 
vampires, and humans. And that's why Justin Timberlake still has a career to this very day. <laughs> exactly. The Reapers, yes. <laughs> yes, no. that's what they secretly called Sync on the street. Did it, I was did surprised. it know that, right, yes. But it was a band, I guess, that was popular over across the big pond, not, not over here. Yeah, no, it was um, a UK band. I don't remember the name of them, but uh, I know that they were fairly popular in the mid-90s. Um, but yeah, that's what most people in the UK knew him from, is being in a boy band <laughs> before... Wow. Uh, oh, he was in the band Bros. <laughs> oh, well, sure. <laughs> what? Uh, oh, sure. <laughs> Bros. Yeah. That's a given. Yeah, so in... <laughs> Boy band he was Bros. In the band... <laughs> yeah, so he was in the band Bros from 1986 to 1992. So, you know, just that, that, that band. And then he became an actor and uh, went to go on playing a bunch of scary or not so scary beloved Tumblr characters for all teenage girls to love in the 2000s. That's his bio. Very good. Thank you, Dalen. <laughs> You're welcome. Awesome. You're welcome. That's, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> so now we're, you know, establishing that we've got different levels of vampires, and these Reapers will want, want to wipe out the vampires and then the humans. And, of course, with this new strain, apparently this pathogen that's come out, um, and, and these anomalies of, of having human and, then, and vampire qualities similar to to what happened with Blade and his his origin story. Then we get introduced to the uh, the blood pack. Let's take attendance here. Uh Lighthammer, Verlaine, Priest, Snowman, Chupa and Reinhardt. And I think Reinhardt is the Ron Perlman character. Yes, he is and he's sporting a lovely f amount of strangely patterned facial hair. But uh <laughs> Yes, that is Reinhardt for sure. And he definitely makes a first impression that to me as a Rod Perlman fan, as also a fan of the Alien franchise, reminded me a lot of his character in Alien Resurrection, where he just kind of comes up and is like, yo, look at me, you know, throwing my dick out to everybody. What? <laughs> this is a PG-13 show, Dalen. Jeez. <laughs> I didn't know. I could. All right. I will. I will reword that. No, no, you don't have to. That's fine. We can't tell. We can't <laughs> see. Just like the question that I just broke down next that comes up, I believe that one of them, I guess, Reinhardt asked Blade, and he says, "Do you blush? You will. You will. Yeah, right. Exactly. And the next thing I put down was <laughs> that the uh, that silver nitrate explosive gets attached to the back of was it Scud's head or something. Yeah, uh, yeah, he shoots it in the back of his head and says uh, that he will, you know, make it explode all over the place if uh, he doesn't follow uh, Blade's orders. Yep. Yay, kaboom! <laughs> and that, when it gets to it with the whole bait and switch of all of it, the whole explosion, oh, it was, it was uh, a dud, it was not real. Oh, no, it was. Oh, and then yeah. Norman Reedus goes off to join Norman Fetus and just explodes into an earth-shattering kaboom. Kaplooey. And with that, once again, that was, I believe, 
an actual effect. They just literally exploded Norman Reedus on stage. No. So they that was one of those CGI effects where I'm like, okay, this this is okay. It's not that bad. But the practical effects of like, for example, attaching the bomb to Perlman's head, that looked gruesome. And there's a lot of gruesomeness in this movie with those oh. practical effects. Ugh. I openly admit yeah, I winced a... when I'm seeing them cut through the vampire for the autopsy. The Reaper autopsy, yeah, exactly. Um, but we did see a couple of things. Uh, we Some of the myths of, of vampires, in this case, that silver and garlic are no good. However, daylight will harm and destroy, and UV light. But um, But like you said, too... With with the uh, the cutting and, and the dispatching of uh, in this case of of priest, how easy was it to uh, get a head slice <laughs> of uh, of that character with that with that sword? Just for one example, and again the <coughs> head explosion thing. Let's now that I'm thinking of it too. I think the first time maybe in film that came about was in the early '80s with the movie Scanners. Wow, mm. and that gif has lived on forever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, absolutely. I I always feel bad for the blue Muppet, you know, with the mustache, who uh, Grover always annoys the crap out of her, his head just exploding. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, actually, I wanted to bring up um, the when it came to the autopsy scene and other certain elements of the film i think we really need to give a nod to the sound design in this movie because even like the touch of um you know uh what's her name nasia nasia the Uh, main fabian nisa nisa Nisa. (laughs) it is nisa nisa uh when nisa is doing the autopsy and she um kind of knocks on the bone plating that's over the heart. Like, just that sound sent shivers down my spine, Mm. mostly because I was thinking about how we're, you know, as a culture, we're so easily used to seeing vampires being killed, just going right through the heart with a uh, a stake. And, um... (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or, you know, just any sort of weapon. And, uh it's it's crazy to think that there's a breed of vampires where that is not what you could easily do to them. And I don't know, just something about, like, a bone sound always kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies when the I watch willies. anything like this. <laughs> or the willies, yes. Or the billies. Or the wonies. <laughs> Willie or wonies. Stop that. What? <laughs> it's just a tangent. Well done. Medium don't, rare. Don't overburn that tangent. Okay. <laughs> you're, not, you're only gonna have half a show, you know. Oh man. <laughs> Won't they? All right. Sorry. Cue the old saying: Blade Whistler interchanging. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies closer. A teacher. <laughs> that goes very far back. Yes. Godfather times, I think. Are we talking about the subway sa- or the sub sandwich? Because I love just having it's a nice Godfather stuff. sandwich. Yeah, I know. See, 
if you're not from where Eddie and I are from, that joke will go completely over your head. But for the for the three of you listening from our area, it's a signature sandwich at a local eatery. Oh, and it is delicious, isn't it's it? Very good. It's, a, it's, it's got the, capicola. It's, it's the Italian oh. combo sandwich. Yeah, it's life changing. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. See, now I want to have one right now, Eddie. What did? You, why did you? Why did you have to bring up the Godfather? But they're, but they're closed. I mean, we can sneak in there and you know make a sandwich. Make him an offer he can't refuse. Okay. On this That's the day of my daughter's wedding. That's the godfather I was. Really. So. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. So is it going to have like like a headless horse in it as well? Oh, no. Like, what's going on? No. How do you do a spooky? We're in the season of headless horsemen. Come on now. <laughs> Flying pumpkins on fire, maybe. <laughs> fire, fire. Oh, and exactly that makes right. sense. <laughs> Speaking of on fire, we now <laughs> we get to the part now where um, I guess they have to. It's it's the only way they can get through this. But Verlaine and Lighthammer, I just put see daylight because one of them, I guess, has turned. See Daylin, and that's it. And see Daylin, yeah. <laughs> I just inspire pure, you know, vampire explosive uh, death. That's definitely what I do. I'm proud of you. But one of them, you know, but willingly deciding to sacrifice themselves. That's the first I think I saw that happen. Uh, Blade come out with the line, you, you obviously do not know who you're effing with. And, uh, and Language, the, Eddie. The light, again, oh. blinded by the light. Good song. Half noose with a spruce in a rodeo, blinded by the light. A musical interlude by Peter Malnick. Exactly. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, somewhere we get oh. close to um, where where uh, Blade is taken down, tased, and then retased, and he's on some kind of um, uh, a blood draining table, and it's going to funnel into you know, wherever it winds up going. Um, it's pretty gruesome looking, if I have to say so myself. Do you say so? Absolutely. Wait, I feel silly. Did we talk about the club scene? yet well that was early earlier um we kind of glossed over it i think though yeah okay because i think that's a pretty important moment that we gotta we gotta divulge a little bit more is that okay yeah okay so um when it came to the club scene that involved you know many of our our vampire boys and girls getting to meet uh this new vampire uh breed I would love to know uh, from you guys, like, what did you think of the fight choreography in those scenes? Did you think, like, it looked really good? And I know that uh, there's a lot of head slicing that happens, but, you know, I think we, I think we've forgotten to talk about Donnie Yen in this movie, who is seriously neglected when it comes to uh, a majority of the film, but it seems like the movie at least gives him one shining moment to uh, kick some ass. And I can tell, does he uh, almost get a uh, vampire through the groin? (laughs) Vampire through the groin. (laughs) I would say it's some of the most impressive fight choreography out of all the movies we've seen up to this point. You know, including the MCU. This is some of the coolest stuff I've seen. And it's just action-packed. It flows. 
it tells such a great story with what they're doing. And I noticed something, especially towards the end of the film with the fight choreography. There was a lot of pro wrestling moves added in, such as elbow drops and a delayed vertical suplex. And when oh. I saw that, I'm like, wait, 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 am I, am I watching SmackDown? Uh, no, no. Oh, Blade? Oh, okay. Blade brought to you by the WWE. Yeah, when I, like I said, when I saw that, I'm like, wait, what? Suplex? And see, a movie will always get for me one additional added bonus point for the incorporation of wrestling moves. And that, man, that delayed suplex, just a work of art. Gordon Soley would say that's a damn fine suplex. For all the wrestling fans out there who got that joke, yeah. a, I did a thumbs up for the audio podcast. Okay. Like, like <laughs> and everyone can see it. Yeah, a. 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 The fight sequence was good. It was different in that setting, and the, yes, the different maneuvers that were had, not just camera shots, but like you said, all the different motions and yeah, the whole thing. So definitely engaging. Would you say, Eddie, that there was a lot of motion in the ocean? Uh, no, we weren't in that setting. It wasn't on a boat or anything. <laughs> I feel like that the film, uh, at, I, as much as I absolutely love the fight choreography in that sequence, I feel like it somewhat grounds to a halt to be like, yo, you should be paying attention to Dottie Yen. We spent a lot of money to get him here from China <laughs> to be in this five-minute sequence, and he doesn't have any lines, but we're going to enjoy the hell out of him just fighting for, like, five minutes. Um, and as much as, like, as someone who loves the editing of um, film and hates when things grind to a halt, I uh, am okay with the movie grinding to a halt to show me that, because Donnie Yen is a goddamn treasure, and we don't respect him enough in Hollywood, in my opinion. We definitely need to show respect to Donnie Yen as well as respect the hyphen with both Spider-Man and Star-Lord. <laughs> truth. Truth. True facts. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and for those of you who, when you hear the name Donnie Yen, you're like, who the heck is that? Um, Donnie Yen is a very important um you know, uh, action movie star in China. And particularly, you will know him from Star Wars, uh, Rogue One, a story. I never know how to say the title of that movie, but... Rogue um, One, a Star Wars story. He probably, story. in my opinion, had like this. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, but he definitely had a standout role in that film, and, uh, you know, he also was in the most recent Triple X uh, sequel film, which, uh, you know, I love me some Xander Cage, a.k.a. Vin Diesel. And, uh, you know, I feel like he just, like I said, does not get enough respect in the film industry outside of uh, his native country. So, um, yeah, I, I totally honestly forgot that he was in this movie and... I just wanted to give a moment to give him a shout out. So, you know, love you, Donnie. Good work. Good work. Thank you. <laughs> I changed his name now. Okay, fine. Glad I could help. <laughs> um, also, I don't know if we've mentioned the Powerpuff Girls, have we? Yeah, we were. you and I were talking about that off mic, and 
that was that was a unique choice, but I I want to say Del Toro's a fan. He's got to be. And also that we have the connection it's a New Line cinema film. New Line is a part of Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers owns Turner Broadcasting which owns Cartoon Network. So I'm guessing that's also part of the reason, but Del Toro has unique interests in terms of things he likes. And I guarantee you, he was probably a Powerpuff Girls fan. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Knowing the things that Del Toro is a gigantic fan of that vary from, you know, uh, giant monsters, kaiju from Japan and anime and all these other very random things like, you know, me and him share a love for Paul Williams as our favorite songwriter, um, you know, and various other things. I wouldn't be surprised if he was just a fan of Powerpuff Girls, but I was, you know, that's one of the things that if I got to interview him, I would be very curious to know why he chose those very specific Powerpuff Girl images. Yeah, it was a very, it was very specific. And again, just very action oriented. Yeah, for sure. I think what's really interesting, though, is the use of um, certain specific scenes. Like, I'll be honest, I was a really big Powerpuff Girls fan back in the day. So I knew uh, what certain episodes, the scenes that were playing on the TV uh, came from. And, you know, I, I don't know necessarily what the connection was with those specific scenes in which he was showing the Powerpuff Girl clips on the TV. But I definitely think they had something to do more with the uh, character development. And, uh, you know, as much as I want to be a film aficionado and know what uh, he's trying to say through those clips, I I don't know. I guess that's something we're going to have to find out in the, you know, uh, Del Toro behind the music episode whenever that happens it was a time of excess vanilla (laughs) ice was on top of the world but it would all come crashing down specifically with a doom 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 did a doom doom word to your mother exactly yes um but the uh um the other thing that's really interesting is that you know Constantly, all the time in Del Toro's films, specifically in this one and in the Hellboy films, he does a lot with showing, um, you know, different forms of media on TV to reflect the, you know, feelings of a character or their interests or to compare it to a piece of media that he loves. So, you know, that's why, like, I want my thinking cap on and need to think a little bit more about why those Powerpuff Girl images are in there. Now, do you, what other series could you see him incorporating in something like this? Uh, that he's interested in? Yeah. Um, you know, again, because he, Del Toro has a very, very big interest in the Universal Monster films. That's why. Fun fact, he was originally supposed to be the one that helmed the Universal uh, Dark Universe franchise that unfortunately started and ended with the Tom Cruise Mummy movie, uh, which definitely shows that, you know, you could have had a really interesting 
reboot of the Universal Monsters if he had had someone of Del Toro's caliber involved, but he didn't, so we know how that ended. But anyway, I, I feel like he probably would have done a little more of the obvious odes to, you know, Bella Lugosi and, um, you know, the Christopher Lee Dracula films, because he also loved, uh, he loves the Hammer Horror films. You know, there's a lot of things that he could have um, made some obvious uh, connections to. But I'm also glad he didn't go for the obvious ones, because, you know, there's only so much uh familiar vampire media shown at us um shown to an audience that uh you need to uh be able to get the message across of what's happening because you know i mean we're dealing with uh blade who's an unconventional vampire character even though he's not a full vampire in an unconventional Um, time (laughs) <laughs> yeah he's he's an unconventional uh vampire character so why would you necessarily have completely conventional vampire imagery surrounding him so i'm kind of glad he didn't go with that personally eddie well we rejoin now like i said it was a pretty uh i, I was cringing when blade was on this impaling table and and the whole thing about harvesting his blood and we're getting close to the end now of the film um, Whistler comes to his rescue and Blade goes into the blood bank pool bath and is renewed, rejuvenated, healed and then kicks ass and um, and Reinhardt meets his end top to bottom. I think though I mentioned earlier how it had more comic book feel to it and some of the some of the action. I mean Whistler uh does the toss of the sunglasses, the shades to Blade. That's a total comic-type move, I think. Oh, yeah. With them catching that. and it, w- it was cheesy, but it made me smile because it's just more of an example of, look how cool this character is. But it's not, like, so over the top, but it just a, puts a smile on your face, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it also uh, comes to mind as being a signature... Wesley Snipes edition. Oh, you know, I've never talked to him personally, but um, if I did, I would have the feeling that that was a Wesley Snipes touch to the character. Because, you know, if you're at all a fan of Blade from the comics, you know that his initial run, he definitely wasn't at all what the Wesley Snipes uh, film interpretation is. He was so different um, in the original comics when he came out. So, you know, there's little touches in both, uh, in all the Blade films that you can tell was like, this is a Wesley touch. And I I tend to think anything involving the sunglasses was definitely him, for sure. And speaking of Wesley's touch with things, in the early 1990s, you had mentioned us off mic. You brought it back to our attention in the 1990s, Wesley was supposed to be T'Challa himself, Black Panther. Yes, that's correct. Uh, he absolutely was gunning to play uh, T'Challa. And um, just before I go into that, I think I should mention that um, Black Panther is my favorite Marvel comic, for sure, and has been since I was really little. So... Um, when uh, there was rumors about uh, 
Wesley wanting to try and do a Black Panther movie that I found out when I was older. And then I saw Blade, or it might have been the reverse, actually. Yeah, it probably was the reverse. But whichever. Basically, when I knew those two things, I was like, what? Like, he would have made an awesome Black Panther. Um, But I think, personally, and this is just, you know, my own thoughts, I feel like Hollywood didn't wouldn't have been able to make a Black Panther movie that would have had the um, caliber and, you know, special effects and, um, you know, uh, depth of storytelling that, you know, a multiple decades of um, comic book movies allowed to have the Black Panther movie we have now come about. Um, would I have loved to have seen Wesley Snipes play Black Panther? Heck yes. And would Hollywood have been ready for another incredibly prominently proud, um, you know, uh, comic book character of color on screen? Hell yes. But I definitely think that, you know, Black Panther is a story that needed a certain kind of attention to detail that Hollywood wasn't able to produce in um, comic book films yet, especially because, you know, seeing Blade, I don't know if you guys know, but the original Blade film, and I think all the other ones, were made for a pretty modest budget. So as much as I would have loved to have had Wesley star in a Black Panther movie, I don't know if they would have given it the budget that it deserved and the attention that that it deserved. Because I don't... I wouldn't have wanted it to come out like Spawn or anything else like that that was also a comic book character I love that had an unfortunate film adaptation. Um, so yeah, it would have been amazing to have Wesley as Black Panther. But, you know, I'm kind of glad he got to play Blade instead because he got to add his own signature Wesley spin to it. And finally, we get to the whole Nomek, his father, his sister, that whole family conflict that, that doesn't go all together that well. And uh, at least at some point, Blade's sword doesn't seem to be working. Um, the quote I have is one of them saying, strange, it hurts no more. And uh, then the uh, the sister going outside for the sun to rise she wanted to to see that even though she knew that was going to be her death it was such a sad ending just for that to watch her dissolve and i was waiting for mr daywalker i don't feel so good (laughs) i absolutely agree it was very sad to see her end but i will also say as a woman uh in the film landscape um I don't really think she offered a lot of chemistry to no. her role in this film, to be honest. Yeah. Um, she was certainly there, and she certainly collected her paycheck from SAG. Yes, absolutely. Um, the actress, who I'm forgetting her name right now, but I'll be honest, I've never seen her in anything else other than this film. She's very memorable. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I, I think the problem with her... And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but had Underworld come out yet? I don't remember. No, Underworld Underworld was 2003. Yeah, that's what I that's what I thought. So 
regardless, I think that um, this actress is being given the, um, or is in the headspace of, I have to vogue through the whole movie as opposed to acting. Because I couldn't honestly believe a word of what was coming out of her mouth and just felt like she, you know, I have a feeling she might have been a model before she was an actress because a lot of this movie seemed like she was posing for a beautiful vampire gothic photo shoot rather (laughs) than actually giving a nuanced performance. Strike a pose. There's nothing to it. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and a lot of people, um, you know, say that like actresses, though I don't completely agree, but Kira Knightley vogues a lot in her films where basically it's like she's trying to look beautiful in every shot rather than necessarily act and be an actress. Um, and I feel like the actress in this film that plays uh, the sister is very much so doing that and not really, you know, coming off at all interesting, especially when in comparison to um, the doctor that was in the prior film that was kind of Blade's love interest, you know, um, it just was very like night and day and very bland to have him next to this girl that was sort of kind of his love interest, but she didn't really do anything that interesting to make you feel like they had any chemistry. The ending takes us to uh, London and Blade encounters that person he he had originally gotten information from by saying, uh, you didn't think I forgot about you, didn't you? And then the, the sword to the head and then you know that that wraps it up but the thing that got me uh, part of the ending credits was throwing in the line where no real reapers were hurt during the making of this film <laughs> i think that's a very um obvious guillermo uh touch to the ending for okay. sure i just thought it lightened it up at the end so to speak oh for sure for okay. sure now one of the questions we got for this episode if you could have chosen a full soundtrack for the movie, what songs would you choose besides Bad Moon Rising? Also, what were the plans for Morbius, and how would you have used him in the next movie? And this question comes from Matthew Wilson. Hmm. Bad Moon Rising has just been a song that's been used in too many films. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, immediately I go to uh, American Werewolf in London as one example. Yeah, for sure. I would have went with a random techno song. Oh, wait, there were many, many, many in this movie. Darude uh, Sandstorm. Movie, yeah, exactly. No, this movie just um, uh, was definitely a product of its time. And I felt like I heard at least the same five rap songs like over and over again. Um, yeah, the soundtrack just didn't really have any sort of oomph to it. And uh, Maybe it's because I'm spoiled by uh, a lot of other 90s soundtracks or it, 90s, early 2000s soundtracks that just had a lot more thought behind it. But this one definitely uh, seemed like it wasn't sure um, what sort of direction it should have. And I felt the same way with the score. The score was just very bland. Well, with the soundtrack, with the soundtrack, would you do you believe that that was more of the studio saying, 
hey, Del Toro, we want you to use this song, this song, this song, because the record label who's doing, you know, releasing the soundtrack wants this one, this one, this one. That could be. I would definitely say that's probably what was going on. Because, like, the thing is, is that, you know, uh, this was only um, Del Toro's second, like, really big budgeted studio film, aside from Mimic, and then before he did Kronos. So, you know, he didn't have a lot of say when it came to, like, the soundtrack and what, like, feeling he wanted for the film. And they probably were trying to do a lot of, like, music tie-ins and stuff like that for, you know, the marketing and uh, PR campaign for the film. Um, But if it was me, personally, um, I would have loved to have had more kind of techno metal sort of soundtrack to it but with a normal um orchestra score and not a um techno based one because i felt like it just didn't add anything to the movie and especially when you've seen other superhero films that have a lush orchestra score behind them it adds a bigger oomph to the feeling of the film and i just feel like all the blade movies don't have that when it comes to their soundtracks for me as a moderate metalhead, typo negative would have been a very solid addition to this. But that's just me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um but yeah, but like, you know, someone like Mark Silvestri would have been cool or if they had gotten like uh God not Mark Silvestri, I'm sorry. Dude, that's the guy was, who's with I'm... image comics. <laughs> no, I mean if they had gotten Alan Silvestri Damn, my brain is just a big no, old pile of mushrooms. I'm just now. lucky I knew that one. Cyberforce just yeah. randomly shows up in the middle of the movie. No, <laughs> no, I have scores from other things. I think he did a, a Captain America, the more current, uh, you know. He did the Avenger. he did the Avengers. Yes, right. Yeah, and he did Back to the Future. Oh wow! Okay. Now yeah. our next question comes from Chad Ecto Young of Horror Movie Barbecue. My question. Wouldn't this movie be even more badass with Triple H as a vampire? Well, people, we're going to find out on our next episode. Wrestling with vampires. <laughs> in Blade Trinity from 2005. And it stars not just Wesley Snipes, but Ryan Reynolds. It stars Patton o- Parton Osweird. And, of course, the game, uh, Triple H, uh, as a vampire uh, who sucks blood. Uh. So, uh, no, it doesn't it also star Jessica Biel? It does, uh, it stars, uh, Jessica Biel. Uh. <laughs> so, you know, she traded the seventh heaven wings for vampire teeth. It's that one is a very, very, very interesting movie, and it features a line with juggling and thunder words that I can't say and we won't say on this show because we're PG-13 but it's got some very memorable aspects to it is what I'm going to say so now Dalen first off major thank you for going on our show today and talking with us about all things Blade 2 and Del Toro you're welcome and once again, how can people get a hold of you on social media? You can get a hold of me by going onto Twitter and Instagram and looking up Magic Alamode, 
or you can find me on Slash Film or uh, LeonardMalton.com. And remember, my name is Dalen, D-A-L-I-N. You can find me that way. <laughs> and now, Eddie, before we go, yes. how can people get a hold of us on Facebook? I'm glad you asked that. I did, I did. Go on Facebook at Facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a like on there. Go on Twitter at The Marvelists. Give us a follow on there or myself at Peter Melnick. Eddie's just going to throw a brick at you if you even ask about following him on Twitter. Twitter what? Exactly. You can also find us on Instagram at Eddie9193. That's for you. And also collectively at The Marvelists. You can also find me on Instagram at Peter Melnick and Drop us a line in our email bag. Questions, comments, strongly worded letters. We'll take them. We'll take them. We'll shake our fist at you if you know it annoys us or something, or you know it just rubs us the wrong way. It's like just bad chafing. But you can also, and in addition, and in addition, and in many other ways, listen to this show on a platform. wide variety of streaming platforms, including Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud. And the newest one, because you all demanded it. And the woman did, too. <laughs> Spotify. Yes. Go on Spotify and listen to every single episode of this show. You can listen to them on the other ones, too, including iTunes. Rate, review, and subscribe, by the way. And go on Stitcher.com slash premium and use that promo code at checkout. Marvelous. Yes. And it's got to be about... Two dozen episodes at least. There's quite a few. There's there's many. There's a, there's a plethora of episodes, Eddie. Would you clean that mic for crying out loud? Stay away from Don't that. Don't tell me you... how to live my life, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're so on Stitcher me. with premium, you're going to end up getting a crap ton, ton of content. Like we said earlier in the episode, including the WTF archive with Mark Marin. you also get Earwolf, you also get Weird Al's concert archives, and you get... Wolverine, the long night, and when you want to stay on for Stitcher Premium, it's only four ninety nine a month. That's chump change, people. That's like the cost of two cups of coffee at Starbucks, maybe less. We don't know. You you know you go. I do a lot. I have a gold card because I'm a basic bitch like that. But <laughs> and now we know we and knowing <laughs> is half of the battle. Oh, what a uphill battle it is. But. Sign up for Stitcher Premium and help support this here fine program. And There's give, more. give us a hug. You see, Eddie, say, hey, Captain America, let me get a hug. And he's going to be like, wait, Captain America's here? Oh, you mean me. <laughs> Let's just see when and if that happens. You just watch. Mm -hmm. I want that to happen now. Have that camera ready. People in the area, if you see Eddie Wilson, <laughs> be sure to yell, hey, Captain America, and hug the man. But he might mace you. We don't know. It's not entirely plausible. Eddie, would you mace them? I don't own mace. Would you kick them in the testicles if they have them? Negative. Negative? Well, I mean, they're lunging at you, Eddie. I mean, that might be a form of assault on their end. So, you know, you're on the right. Defend yourself, Eddie. Then I have to make like <laughs> Howard and Duck. <laughs> Wag, or whatever he says in the comments. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's about right. Wag. Somebody's got to. Now let's get into our overall review of the movie. And because we have a special guest today, Dalen, you're going to go first. Sure. Um, so I really adore Blade 2 because it definitely is a film of its era. 
And it absolutely invokes the things that were going much better and progressing in terms of the comic book film genre at the time. So for that, I definitely give it a lot of high praise. I don't necessarily think it's the best comic book movie of the early 2000s, but it's definitely one that I, you know, holds a very special place in my little heart. And for the fact of it introducing me to Del Toro's work, I definitely, you know, hold it even to a higher standard. And, you know, even though some of the things are a little dated when it comes to the effects and uh, certain fight choreography scenes looking like a Pixar film rather than a action adventure film that it should be, uh, I definitely think it, uh, you know, stands to be an example of, you know, comic book film history. And that is always a good thing. So with that in mind... My uh, rating for it is a 3.5 out of 5. All righty. I'll go next. Well, this is my second favorite comic book movie to come out of 2002. The first being, of course, Spider-Man. Eddie, if you're here for actually watching this, Eddie just did the thwip hand sign, and that ruled so much. I took a (laughs) shot. (laughs) But uh, from... this this is scary for me because now I am inside the mind of Melnick and it is not pretty. <laughs> it's gorgeous, actually. <laughs> not the right word here, but but for this movie, I enjoyed it. I had a really fun time watching this, and you start to see early on what would become many of the signatures of Del Toro, and it was just a fun movie. Was it the most fun movie I've seen of all the Blade movies so far? Yeah. But so far, in terms of comic book movies in general, it's pretty good. And it's a fun sequel. Again, it's not the greatest, but for what it is, I like it. And if I had to give this a score, well, I have to because it's I'm the guy. what go- you self-imposed and set up, so let's hear I, it. I'm, I'm the like- penis and the anus that set this up. Ow. So Ow. <laughs> I'm going to have to go with a four out of five. Four? Yeah, just... It was a fun movie, but again, I think I actually think then I believe I gave Spider Man one a three and a half or a three and a quarter. You remember that? I'll I don't. boost it. I'll boost Spider Man up to a four. These are both tied for that year, so congratulations, Spider Man! In two thousand two, you got boosted up a little. Yes, as the Grandmaster would say, "You're welcome," and it's a tie. <sighs> Eddie, yourself? I actually trying to because it's, it's always an ordeal, seemingly for me to to do this, but I think five the story, out of five. Like the story moved along pretty well. And you didn't really get too too lost in what was what was happening. Generally speaking, there are messages and themes that can come out of this and so on. And I think maybe being influenced by Dalen's review and then subsequent grade. And I was holding up actually a four before you said three and a half. So I think I'm actually going to go with all your high praise, and I'm going to go three and a half as well. Wait a Whoa. minute! Hold the phone! Hold! Hold the mayo. Spun the tables on Melnick, going lower than than you. All right, I'm my gonna, jaw is on the I, ground, how people. I get it off the basement floor. I would, I would then go. Let me go three point seven five. It's still lower. <laughs> and that's my quarters. What rate. a specific point. <laughs> yeah, well, typically, if you didn't catch this, Dalen, I usually rate him higher than he does. Oh, I Thor see. the Dark World, 12 out of 10. <laughs> oh, 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 stop it, Malekith. 
So, for Peter Melnick, I'm Peter Melnick. Thank goodness. And I'm Dalen at Magic Alamode. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior. <laughs>